Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning, and you can find it on page 1002 there in the Pew Bibles. Now, we have just been singing some theologically rich, word-saturated songs that I pray have connected the truth of God's Word to our hearts in ways that are meaningful and powerful, that they just didn't kind of roll off of our tongues. But, but just to be sure, before we dig in further into the Word and just kind of learn more, even more theological truths, I want to take a moment to try to engage our hearts. We're going to be studying, we're going to come upon texts that deal with the incarnation of Christ. And it's really easy to just kind of get consumed with the information, right? And just stop there. We're known as a heady church. Honestly, I don't mind that. But what I want for us is for a minute to think with our hearts and not with our heads, all right? Uh, what, I'm going to ask you some questions, and what I don't want you to think about is like, well, the Bible says, or, well, you know, this is what right doctrine is, but on the level of your soul, right, what speaks, what, what's coming out of your heart? Here are the questions. Do you believe that Jesus knows you? And then he knows what you're going through. Do you believe the heart level that he can relate to you? That he identifies with you? That he knows your situation, your circumstance? He knows your thoughts, your intentions? You you can feel his presence with you and his love for you? You see, as much as we wrestle with information with, in our heads with, with certain biblical theological truths about Christ, things like His divinity, things like the Trinity, right? I'm like, talk about blow your mind, right? The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, there's one God, you know? Um, his sinlessness, the miracles that He performed, His resurrection from the dead, as, as difficult as it is for us to grasp grapple with these concepts about him that is still easier for us to give a a head nod, a, a theological affirmation to those things than it is for us to know in our hearts that he is with us and for us and in us. Maybe your week has been good, right? The Lord's been speaking to you through His Word. You've, you've been able to see Him answer prayers. I mean, praise God, that's been my week. I'm, I'm really grateful. But you know, it wasn't that long ago that I would have said something very different. I would have been much more like David who said, where are you, God? Are you sleeping? Maybe your week is, has just been tough and you've been entangled in all sorts of sin. Or maybe you've just been Distracted. Right? You just kind of been going through life, flying from one thing to the next, you know, and it's just like, man, I don't know if Jesus is there or if he relates to me, you know. If he's going to have to do that, he's going to have to catch up with where I am. 
Maybe you've been preoccupied on things. Maybe, maybe you've been dealing with some serious fears, like fear of death, fear of the unknown, fear of a loss of control, and, and it's overwhelming you, and you feel like you're sinking. You're struggling and fighting, and you're gasping for breath, and, and you can't see Jesus reaching out to help you. Your theology, all the while, is spot on. And you can give the right biblical answers, but at the level of the heart, you honestly don't know where Jesus is to be found. And here's why I say this. You see, we're going we're gonna to dig into the Word this morning, and we're going to contemplate deep, glorious theological truths, but it won't mean anything for us uh, in this time together if you can't affirm at the end of it all that Jesus lives, having conquered all of your enemies and is present with you to help you. And so as good as it is for us to dig deeply into God's Word this morning, it's not going to mean anything if the Word of God does not dig deeply into our souls. And so I just want to remind us of that before we go and get all nerdy. The big theological truth that we're going to see this morning from our passage, Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, is that the incarnate Son of God has conquered the devil, death, and sin. But it's even more than that. That's not all, right? There's still part of it that connects at that personal heart level. You see, the incarnate Son of God has conquered the devil, death, and sin to help us. And may we all find Him to be our good, loving, merciful, and faithful high priest who knows us, who identifies with us in every respect, who loves us, and who has defeated all of our enemies. Let's turn our attention now to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." I like this passage because it's, it's like a, a Christmas and Easter sermon all rolled into one, you know? In terms of the context, just want to remind you, chapter 1 really focused in on the deity of Christ, who He is as God, right? We saw that He is a superior word. He has a superior glory. He's superior to the angels. As it transitioned then into chapter 2, it, it warned us not to neglect the superior foundation that He offers to us. But in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, the focus shifts then away from His deity to then focus on His humanity. Not only is he fully God, but he is fully man. 
And what we saw in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, is that as the superior man, as the ideal man, the man that, that we were created to be, the perfect man, right, he, in accordance with Psalm 8, he is a superior master who offers us a superior future, all right? The alternative to him being that master that we see in, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, we will actually see today in this text, that slavery to sin, death, and the devil, that those are our options, right? Either he is our master or they are. And the end is quite different. But in verse 9, it says that he suffered death so that he might taste death for everyone. And the rest of this chapter, verses 10 through 18, are giving reason why it was necessary, why it was fitting for him to take on flesh, to suffer and die. And so last week in verses 10 through 13, we saw that our superior foundation, Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering. And he did that right, in order to bring many sons and daughters to glory, to sanctify us. And, and because of his suffering, we now can rest assured that there is purpose in our suffering. And because he was willing to pay that penalty for us, we have no need to be ashamed any longer because he is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. Well, in our text today, verses 14 through 18, it goes even deeper into the reason why it was fitting, why it was necessary that the Son of God take on flesh to suffer and die and taste death for everyone. The incarnate Son of God conquered the devil, death, and sin to help us. Now, I want to show you how I get this from the text, okay? Uh, I want to I do a little hermeneutics with you, right? So you can kind of see why, why does Chet develop these propositions and where do they come from to begin with. And so these will show up here on the screen. There's a natural division in this passage between verses 14 through 16 and 17 and 18, right? And in many ways, these two sections mirror or complement one another. And so what you see there is that in verse 14 and verse 17, there are two inferences, two conclusions, two therefore statements. It says, hey, pay attention to it. This is, this is what, why I'm saying all this. This is what it means for you. Okay? Then from there, second, there are two main clauses regarding Christ's incarnation. He partook of flesh and blood, right? He became like us in every respect. Third, there are two purpose clauses, right? He destroys the devil and delivers us from slavery to the fear of death in verses 14 and 15. And he did that to become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for sin in verse 17. And then there are two ground clauses, Right, two supporting statements describing his help towards the offspring of Abraham and towards those who are tempted. Right? See how I got that? Right? The incarnate Son of God right, conquered the devil, death, and sin to help us. Okay? Now, and, and we're just going to go through that, right? That's kind of become my custom, and so we're just going to break that down into three parts. So first, the incarnate Son of God. And guys, this is huge, right? Because when you talk to people, most people think it is absolutely ridiculous that we believe in a God who would give up glory to take on flesh and suffer and die. And if we're totally honest with ourselves, boy, that's, that's pretty ridiculous, right? Unless it's true. I mean, why on earth would that happen? How could it be that the Son of God would leave His eternal heavenly glory to take on flesh to become like us? 
And, and even if he did, why did he not just do it like, like the gods of Greek mythology? Just kind of hide his true identity, not, not become like us in every respect, but just, you know, kind of be able to dwell among us, right? I mean, why suffer want? Why suffer temptation? Why suffer hunger and thirst and, and tiredness? Why suffer betrayal and loneliness and temptation and suffering and death if he is God? I mean, have you ever wondered that? Am I the only one here that's ever wondered that? I don't think so. I mean, even Louis Versace, right, the, the purse guy, couldn't imagine a God who would give up luxurious accessories in order to take on flesh and die. It seems crazy. It doesn't seem fitting to us. Well, here's the good news, guys. You're not the first ones to wonder that, right? The recipients of this letter to the Hebrews were struggling to believe that very thing. That's why it's here. Why would the Christ suffer and die? And here's, here's even, what complicates it even further. Even the earliest Christian heresies were not over the fact that Jesus was fully God, but that he was fully man. They couldn't fathom the idea that God would suffer and die. And so one example is docetism, right? That he wasn't really man, he only appeared to be man. He only pretended to eat. He only pretended to sleep. It didn't really happen because he couldn't be like us. I think if we're honest, many of us struggle with that, that it's actually easier for us to believe that he is other than what we are, right? He is God. I am human. He is powerful. I am weak. He is sinless. I am not, right? Conclusion, he can't relate to me. He doesn't understand me. He doesn't know what it's like. He won't love me or accept me. And when you start to question that, even simple things like, okay, did he really bleed? Was he really hungry? Then we turn to Scripture and we begin to question all the other things that it says about him. Can we really believe these things are so, right? If, he's, if God is not a physical being and he can't suffer and, and all of that, perhaps that, all that talk about him being a social, a emotional being who wants to relate and engage with us, who, that's not really true. That's just man sort of reading man into who God is, anthropomorphizing, right? That he's, he's, he's not really that way. And so when it talks about things like, okay, he's, he's grieved by our sin, that's not really true. You know, maybe he made us, maybe he created us, but he's just kind of left us and he's doing his own thing and he doesn't really care. He doesn't really understand. He doesn't really want to know us or could even do that. And so what we do is we go through life without him. We won't outright deny him, but functionally, day in, day out, think about the bulk of our time and our energy, what we invest ourselves in, he's not present, right? He's not. But friends, if you have ever wondered or thought like that, I want you to look deeply into this text because it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise partook of the same things. Because of the children that he mentions in verse 13, the children of God share in flesh and blood, the son likewise partook. He participated. He shared in the same things. Everything that pertains to being flesh and blood, he participated in. He shared in. Uh, Guys, do you see the unity, the solidarity that is there that the Son of God was made flesh and made like us. He connects to us in every way. There's not one thing that separates you from him. Nothing that he can't relate to. Not your toothache, not your bad hair day, nothing. He gets it. He is not other. Just like the angels in verse 16, he is not other He is like the offspring of Abraham. How could he be our unashamed brother if he wasn't like us? How could he really identify with those who struggle to be faithful children of God if he himself did not live flesh and blood with all of the temptations that we face as flesh and blood? And so he identifies with us completely as humans, as embodied souls in flesh and blood who face suffering and temptation in order to identify with us completely as children of God and as offspring of Abraham. He likewise took on flesh. Friends, do you see what an effort he has made to connect with us? We have a hard time going across the street to connect with our neighbors. He left his eternal glory, and took on flesh and suffered and died. That's amazing. But not only did the Son of God partake of flesh and blood, but verse 17 builds on that to say that he had to be made like us in every respect. Not only did he, but he had to. He had to, and that word means he must. He's obligated. He's bound the way that we're bound to pay off the debt that we have incurred. Right? You have to do it. Somebody's got to pay it. In this case, he did. It was necessary, or as we saw last time in verse 10, it was fitting that he had to be made like us in every respect. So what that means is there's not one way that he can't identify with you completely. He had the potential to sin. He didn't sin, but he had the potential to, right? Otherwise, what's that whole story we read about that Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness? It doesn't make any sense at all, right? If he did not have the potential to sin, why the temptation? And, and, if, and if he could not sin, didn't have that capacity, why would he even go out there in the first place? Why wouldn't he just kind of save us all of the time and all of the energy by just saying, listen, bro, son of God, can't sin. You're wasting your time. All your little arrows, pew, pew, pew. They mean nothing. Right? That's not what happened. He really suffered temptation. As it says there in verse 18. Now he did so, chapter 4, verse 15, in every respect he was tempted as we are, but yet without sin. But he did suffer temptation. 
And so we know that he partook of flesh and blood in order to identify with us perfectly as children of God and that he had to be made like us in every respect and that included the potential for sin and the reality of temptation and suffering and death. But why? Right? Because it's one thing to, to believe that God became man and dwelt among us. It's another thing to understand why he did that. For what purpose was it fitting for him to do so? And that's why we go into the second point, right? That the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, has conquered the devil, death, and sin. Scripture presents us that we have three primary enemies. You have three primary enemies. I have three primary enemies. We all do, right? Sin, death, and the devil. And Scripture also says that those enemies are our earthly masters who rule over us, right? They reign in our lives, Okay, so these enemies are there and they want to lead us to hell to eternal death and separation from God. But by taking on flesh and blood, by being made like us in every respect, the Son of God was able to do what we could not. Anybody planning to leave here and never sin again? Think you're going to accomplish that? Anybody planning on walking out of here and never dying right? He conquered our enemies. He defeated that which enslaved us. And the first enemy that he conquered by taking on flesh, suffering and dying is the devil. Verse 14 says, he took flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. What do we make of that, right? We got old 70s horror movies running through your heads right now, right? Isn't God the only creator and sovereign over all who sets the boundaries and limits of our days? Yes. So what are they saying to us here? What does it mean that the devil has the power over death? Well, the devil is described in a variety of ways throughout Scripture. First John chapter 5 describes him as the, says that the whole world is under the sway of the devil. John 12 and 14 call him the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4 says he's the God of this age. Ephesians 2 says that he's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We know elsewhere in Scripture that he's a murderer, he's a thief, he's the father of lies, he's our accuser and our slanderer, he's the deceiver, the tempter, and destroyer. But we should not think of him as some evil twin counterpart to God. Right? Right? Like you got the good God and you got the bad God and they're just kind of at war with each other all the time. Because we, we know from books like Job that Satan cannot do anything beyond what God allows him to do. And so death is held by the devil not in an ultimate sense but in a secondary sense. It is God who numbers our days, not the devil. And so what does it mean that he holds the power of death? Well, let's, let's think about it, right? We learn from Romans that the wages of sin is death, right? Because you sin, death now has power over you, right? And we know that both sin and death hold power over us because all sin and all die, right? Following the logic? Okay. And so the devil did not possess control over death inherently. No, he gained power over it when he seduced mankind to rebel, to sin against God. 
And every one of us has done that. John Owen said that all of Satan's power over death was founded on sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. So he has tempted us. We've, we've sinned. He has power over us. And since we're born with sin nature, we can't not sin. And so he has the power of death over us. But if, you, if this obligation of the sinner to death is removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. Now, Satan is a serious adversary. And we are told in passages like Ephesians 6 that we are to put on the whole armor of God and wage war in prayer against him. But I don't want you to just think like the horror movies present it, that our, our fight that we're waging is against things like levitation or vomiting pea soup or heads spinning in 360 degrees. Okay? Because as another theologian puts it, the only weapon the devil can use to destroy us in death is our sin. Nobody goes to hell because they are oppressed by the devil or even possessed by the devil. Nobody goes to hell because they are harassed by the devil or get shot at by the devil or given hallucinations by the devil. These are all smokescreens to hide the one deadly power in Satan's artillery, namely unforgiven sin. The only reason anybody goes to hell is because of their own sin. And all Satan can do is fight like hell to keep you sinning and to keep you away from the one who forgives. And that's what he does. Now, friends, that does not mean that he is going to try to make your life as miserable as possible. Meaning he's just going to keep taking stuff. You're destitute in poverty, sackcloth and ashes, and that's you know, boils and all that stuff. That's, that's your life. More often, he might give you everything you want to keep you from knowing Jesus. Keep you fat and happy. I mean, isn't that what he offered Jesus in his temptation? I'll give you everything if you bow down to me. You can live the American dream. You can be an extremely moral person. You can even be a very religious person, right? You can give your life to trying to help fix the brokenness that you see existing in the world. You can live a happy, perfect, white picket fence, right? Obedient kids, beautiful house, beautiful car, beautiful wife, beautiful hair kind of life, and still be the one who is under the power of death because you don't have Christ. The devil just might give you everything you want to keep you from him. But through death, he not only defeated, rendered powerless, the one who has the power of death, the devil, but he also did that so that he might deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, from the moment we are born into this world, we live under the shadow of death, right? And each passing day takes us one step closer to the grave, one step closer to death. 
And we don't like that. That's a terrifying concept. And we might respond in all sorts of ways, right? We might, we might shake our fists in anger, right, at death, like we read about in, in the Invictus poem a while back. We, we, might, uh, we might just try to take death in our own hands and cheat death with risky behaviors. We might try to prolong death for as long as possible through medical technologies, right? We might... We might just sort of fascinate over death and just kind of go about in perpetual mourning like Siggy from What About Bob, right? You are going to die. I am going to die. What's there left to be afraid of? The solution, Tourette's syndrome, but it's for another time. We might kind of go through life separating ourselves from others because of the pain of loss. If death takes them away, I don't want to grieve. I don't want to mourn. I don't want to feel that pain. And when we experience loss, we try to stuff it, right? Like we try, we think that as as soon as they're in the ground and the funeral's over, it's back to life as normal, and we don't grieve it. We don't deal with it. We stuff it. See, more often what we do because we're afraid of death is we just busy ourselves so that we can do anything and everything to just forget about it. Because death, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, is terrifying. But in taking on flesh and facing our fear for us, Jesus conquered death. And he conquered death by death. It's the death of death in the death of Christ. Right? And Jesus dying on the cross, it's like, it's like Jesus taking the devil's own weapon away from him and using it against him, right? I mean, in dying on the cross, in, in experiencing that on our behalf, the devil and death appeared to have won only to find out that Jesus defeated death by death. And so if Jesus defeated death, not only are we no longer slaves to it, but we have no need to fear it. When we die, we will enter into eternal glory with Christ forever, and that is far, far better. It's so good that they don't even know how to talk about it, right? Why don't we have all of these descriptions of what heaven's like? Well, two reasons. One, the writers haven't died yet, and two, it's too wonderful to comprehend John keeps telling us that when he had visions of it, right? It's hard to grasp what it'll be like, but C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle describes it this way. He says, "The, the school term is over, the summer holidays have begun, the dream is ended, and this is the morning. And as he spoke, Aslan no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. As for us, this is the end of all of the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. At this was at last the beginning of chapter one 
of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, which every chapter is better than the one before. Can't help thinking about a recent funeral of a young boy, a brother in Christ, where that was quoted. Knowing that that great story is ours through the death of Christ frees us from slavery to the fear of death. If you find yourself just battling, you're, like, you're afraid of dying, you're afraid of death, right? And let's face it, that's natural. It's like the most natural thing that you can experience. The solution is meditating upon our future glory in Christ and what He has accomplished by taking on flesh and dying for us. So the incarnate Son of God conquered the death, uh, conquered death and the devil. But how did the death of Christ accomplish that? And why didn't He just snap His fingers and make it happen that way? I mean, He's God, right? Couldn't He have done it that way? Why did he have to become like us in every respect and suffer and die? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 17. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And why did he have to become a merciful and faithful high priest? Well, here it is. In order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that word's a big theological term. Propitiation means a sin or a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. God's wrath against our sin. You see, he had become like us in every respect, yet without sin, in order to die in our place. And in dying in our place, he satisfied God's wrath against our sin, against our rebellion, against our rejection of him. In dying for our sin, he canceled out the record of debts that stood against us, debts that we can never repay. And so now we have been redeemed. Now we have been restored. Now we have been forgiven. His blood has cleansed us from all of our sin. His sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God so that its penalty, death, was overturned. That is why he rose from the grave. That's why we will rise from the grave. And so death is not the end. Death is just the beginning. And so if sin is conquered and death is defeated, the devil has no claim on us any longer. All of our enemies that held us in slavery, sin, death, and the devil have been conquered and it was only possible because the Son of God became like us in every respect except for sin. It is through his death that that the devil is rendered powerless, that we are freed from the fear of death, and that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been covered, completely covered. And so what that means for us, and the Son of God become man so that men might become sons of God. And that is a greater hope and something that should stain us and, and speak to our souls. And it's only possible because in his death, he conquered sin, death, and the devil. It's because of his victory that we can have victory over them as well. Now, it, it would be real easy to stop right there. I mean, that's a lot of deep theological truth. There's plenty for us to chew on throughout the week there. 
But if we stopped right there with that doctrine filling our heads, we would still be falling short of it impacting our hearts. Which is why we need point number three. That the incarnate Son of God conquered the devil, death, and sin to help us. I'm actually so glad that verses 16 and 18 are there. All right? As much as I love theology, as much as I love these truths, and they're a lot for us to chew on. I mean, verses 16 through 18 do more than just strengthen the theological argument. They offer present comfort for our souls. I mean, look at verse 16. It says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now that seems kind of weird when you think about the overall flow. Why is he bringing angels back up? Well, because it's still part of that larger section from chapter 1, verse 5 through the end of this chapter. It's focused on how Jesus is superior to angels. And that though he's fully man, he is still supreme over them. But he didn't come to help them. Why? Well, angels don't suffer. Angels don't die. Angels don't sin. And therefore, the devil has no power over them. The Son of God did not have to become a man to help the angels. But he had to be made like his brothers in every respect in order to help the offspring of Abraham. Well, okay, Chet, that sounds great. But the last time I checked Ancestry.com, I am not a Jew. And so what does that say for, for us, right? Well, the good news is that passages like Romans chapter 4 and Galatians 3 tell us that because of faith in Christ, if we have faith in Christ, that we are offspring of Abraham. And with that, all of the attendant blessings that come alongside that, that he gives to Abraham, he also gives to us. And so if you have repented of your sin, you trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of eternal life, guess what that means? You are offspring of Abraham through faith in Christ. So it is speaking to you. But what I really want us to focus on is the fact that he helps. And that's an ongoing present tense, that he helps. Meaning he helps right now. And he helps right now. And he helps right now. And he helps right now. On and on and on and on and on. Ever-present help from the incarnate Son of God towards us. He is not distant or unconcerned. He is with you. Down in the pit of your brokenness and weakness, as the devil is firing all of his arrows at you, slandering you, accusing you, attempting to deceive you or to entice you into sin, trying to get you to believe that Christ is not there and that he does not care about you, as the fear of death looms heavy over your head and over your heart and you just want to busy yourself or to run away or do anything so that you can just forget so long as you can avoid the pain and grief of death, he is with you, helping you. And I don't mean that he's helping you like he's, he's handing you a cup of cold water even though you're about to die. As nice as that is. I mean, he takes 
a hold of you. He covers you and he will not, he will never let you go. You will not fall into Satan's clutches. You will not slip hopelessly into death because the incarnate Son of God has conquered the death and devil in order to hold us in his never failing arms. That's what that word means. That he has taken hold of you. That he has grasped you. That he is concerned about you. That's what it means that he helps you. And when the devil prowls, seeking someone to devour, and you feel the yoke of the fear of death tightening around your neck, the incarnate Son of God is with you to help you. He has defeated all of our enemies, all of our earthly masters. By his death, he, the risen Lord, will be with us to help us in all of the remaining skirmishes until the weapons are finally and fully laid down. And that remaining fight, though a decisive victory on the cross has been won, which includes the fight against sin, there is this remaining fight, these these last remaining skirmishes that we have to deal with. Until Jesus returns again in glory, we will experience suffer and temptation. But verse 18 gives us hope in the midst of it all. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As if Jesus was just other. He could not relate to us. How could a God who knows nothing of temptation, who knows nothing of suffering, offer any real help to those who face it every single day? How could he sit up there on his throne and command us, do this, do this, do this, when he has no idea what it's like? Be like Bob Newhart's counsel, right? Stop it. Why are you doing that? Just stop it. We've all experienced this in, in some way, right? You're in the on-deck circle, biggest game of your baseball career, right? It's the championship game. You're coming up, the biggest at bat you have ever seen in your life, and somebody who has never even held a bat yells to the fence, just hit a home run. Thank you. Yeah, I would be glad to do that. I just wish that every time I swung that bat, that's all that happened, right? And that guy, I mean, not only does he not hold the bat, but he has never faced that nasty curve that that pitcher throws. Or maybe it's a a young, well-meaning, unmarried friend who who tries to give you marriage advice or, or someone who's never even changed a diaper tries to tell you how to parent or or if you just grab the doodad and, and the thingamabob, you could fix the whatchamacallit, right? Now, all of that is very well-meaning and well-intended, right? And there might even be some truth in what that person says, because let's face it, if you did hit the home run, you would win the game, right? If it were only that easy. But where it falls short in this well-meaning advice is that the giver lacks both the experience and the ability, right? But not Jesus. 
says here that he has experienced temptation in every respect as we have, and yet he never gave into it. And he bore the full weight of suffering through it. And so not only does he know what it's like to be tempted just like you are tempted, but he actually knows it better than you because he never gave into it. Right? Have you ever tried to lift weights and people keep adding weight to it just for fun? You know, some guy just throws 25 pounds on that side. You're just like, you know. If they keep doing that, eventually what happens, right? It's crushing your chest. You can't lift it any longer. But Jesus bore the full weight of it. The full weight of temptation, never giving in. Every weight that you could possibly throw on there over and over and over again. He held it all. He wasn't crushed underneath it. He bore the full weight of it. And so he actually knows temptation better than you do because he did not cave under it. I have no idea where I am. (laughs) I'm right here. I know that, but yeah. Uh, And not only has he experienced the full weight of temptation, but he actually has the ability to help those who are being tempted. Right? It says right there, he has the ability to help. He's not simply telling us to stop it or to try to use the doodad to fix the whatchamacallit. He has the ability to offer real and present help to those who are being tempted. Now, he's not going to do it for us, right? You're not going to just wake up one day, find yourself immune or impenetrable towards temptation. But he offers real and present help when we find ourselves in the midst of temptation. And how does he do that? Well, I mean, we could, we could spend weeks on that. But there are a few things that we see right here in this text, ways that, that Jesus offers us present help. And the first is just his presence, right? I mean, though we are broken sinners living in a broken world, Jesus did not run from brokenness and sin. He entered into it, right? The unbroken one entered into a broken world to restore that which was born broken, to fix it, to perfect it. Right? He got down in the pit with us, experiencing all of the brokenness himself so that he could heal and perfect us. And the only reason you don't see him physically present with you now is because he went to his Father's side in order to send what? The helper, the comforter the sanctifier, the Holy Spirit, who is not just present with us, but in us, in our hearts, so that we might know Him and love Him, unite us with Him, have access to God through Him. We see that in this passage that Jesus is for us and against our enemies, right? He's not against you. He's not just kind of waiting to pounce on you because you've sinned so that he can condemn you. That's not how he goes through life. No, he entered into that brokenness not to condemn, but to fight what we could not fight in and of ourselves against our enemies, the devil, death, and sin. He won the victory for us. He is fighting even still in these remaining skirmishes 
these last dying efforts of the devil, death, and sin with us and in us. We also see that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And so his mercy is another way. Even when we fail, even when our sin displeases him, when it grieves him, even when we have messed up so bad that we don't know that we will ever be restored, his displeasure towards our sin results in mercy, not condemnation, in mercy. He gives grace. He gives help. He does not give us what our sins deserve. His judgment, God's judgment has fallen upon Christ. So we get glory. It's a present mercy. We see He is faithful. Not only is He merciful, but He's faithful. He has given us a perfect example of what it means to live in service to God. We can look to him and learn how to live, how to pray, how he fought sin, how he obeyed his heavenly Father, even in the midst of extreme uh, suffering and temptation. And because he is faithful, we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will never break his promise. And if he says that he is with us to help us, we can rest assured that even though I'm not seeing it, and even though I'm not feeling it at the moment, I know that he is. We see that he is our high priest. See, a priest, we're going to deal more with priests a lot later on, but for now, it's just worth saying that a priest stands between God and his people as a mediator. And so he communicates God's word to his people, and he intercedes for his people to God. And so here is Jesus present with us, helping us by communicating God's word to our hearts And he even now intercedes to God for us. And one other observation we see from this text that he is our propitiation. That no matter what sin or filth, no matter what temptation we may fall into, our hope is not found in how holy or godly we think we are, but in his perfect sacrifice for us. We do not sanctify ourselves. We do not cleanse our sin. Cleansing your hands is not cleansing your hearts. And so our hope Our guarantee, our assurance is in the fact that Jesus is our perfect propitiation for all of the past and all of the present and all of the future sins of his people. And the more deeply that these rich theological truths are not simply in our heads, but rooted in our hearts, the greater the present help will be that we have in the midst of our temptations. Do you think you know theology? Well, until that theology comes to bear in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your temptation, we still have more to learn. But there is one additional way Jesus is meant to be present, fighting for us 
and against our enemies, extending mercy, displaying faithfulness, serving as priests to one another, whose love and sacrifice for one another covers a multitude of sins, and that is the church. Jet, where do you get that? I get that from the context of who it's written to. Right? This letter was not written to individuals so that they can improve their vertical relationship, just me and God. But it was written to a bunch of believers who are facing temptation, who are facing suffering, in order to help them to fix their eyes on Jesus together. And so, I need to bring clarity to some things that I said last week, as well as seek to apply this text to us as a congregation. You see, I haven't done my job as a pastor unless I bring it down to the level of how we live together, okay? And I don't want that to be misunderstood. My statements last week regarding the life of uh, shame in the life of the congregation was not a personal commentary on recent events that have happened in the life of this church. But as a pastor seeking to shepherd his congregation to help shepherd one another better. I want us to live in the reality that we are the family of God who has been freed from all shame. See, <clears throat> there is a tendency among Christians and among churches and among Christians in this church not to live in light of the completed work of Christ. And so when they see sin, they tend to condemn or to shame or, or to live in shame and in condemnation, forgetting that Jesus' sacrifice has completely paid for it, that he is the one who is bringing us to glory, that he is the one who is sanctifying us, and that no matter what we might do, if his blood is applied to us, there is no reason to be ashamed. And so when we see sin in our lives or in the lives of others, we can deal with it quickly, we can deal with it assuredly through repentance and faith and move forward, keeping our eyes on Jesus. But the tendency that I often see is not to fix our eyes on Jesus, but to navel gaze, to look to ourselves, to stare at our sin. And if that's what we are doing to ourselves, and if that's what we're doing to each other, we won't be conformed into the image of Christ. We'll just be looking at one another's sin, and we will unintentionally, though well-meaning, hold one another in captivity to sin, death, and the devil. But what God wants for us what the writer of Hebrews wants for us, what I want for us, is to change the conversation so that we are actually helping one another fight against temptation, suffering, and sin. I want what Robert Murray McShane once said, that for every look at self, we take ten looks to Christ. Or as one article that that John Mahan pointed out immediately after the sermon, though it would have been great to have it before, but I'm so thankful that I have it now, is that he said, this article says that we are to glimpse at sin and grieve it, but gaze at Christ and glory. 
And that's the proper relationship. That's the proper focus. That's how we should think about those things. Not to minimize sin, right? And calling sin belly button lint, I'm not minimizing sin because let's face it, belly button lint is gross. Nobody goes through life collecting belly button lint. You see belly button lint, you don't leave it there. You dig it out, right? It's gross. It's disgusting. Nobody wants it, right? Uh, And so don't read that as a minimization when what I'm trying to communicate is where we set our focus and how we help one another by setting our eyes on Christ. It's only by fixing our eyes on Him that we become what we behold and are conformed into the image of Christ. You keep looking at sin, you will be sin. And here's how I see that same thing in our text today. The devil is our slanderer and our accuser. He entices us to sin, and as soon as we do, he seeks to condemn us in it, in our sin. He, he wants nothing more than to point out our sin to us. The goal is to point out our sin in order to exalt himself over us and to hold us in it. And many professing Christians operate that way, not just outside the church, this church, but inside this church. Death tells us that we are guilty that we are sinners, that we are condemned. It always points to the problem, but offers no solution, and the result is fear. Not godly fear, not a reverent fear, but earthly, man-centered, faithless, sin-soaked terror that if you don't get your act together, if you don't clean up your junk, God is going to damn you forever. And again, Many professing Christians operate this way, not just outside this church, but inside this church. Sin tells us that the displeasures of this world are too great to pass up, too large to be forgiven, too much for you to ever change. And again, many professing Christians operate that way, not just outside this church, but inside this church. And we are not immune to that. I wouldn't be faithful to the word. I wouldn't be faithful to you if I didn't address it. And when we operate that way, we are acting as enemies, not fighting for one another against our enemies. And that's what I want us to be about. When we are truly living in light of Christ's triumph over all of our enemies, the help that we offer each other will look like the help that Jesus gives, right? We won't remove ourselves from sin and brokenness. We won't separate ourselves from the sinner saying, listen, you're responsible to get yourself out of that pit and I'm just going to leave you in it until you figure it out. No, Jesus entered into brokenness, right? He entered into it. That means that we go to them, we extend ourselves, we get down into the pit with them in order to, to help redeem and restore and forgive them to offer competent help that can, that can serve to not just mourn and grieve their sin, but to, to find healing from it. We won't fight against one another, but for one another against our true enemies. Rather than, than passing just and self-righteous judgments, though we find sin displeasing, we will extend mercy towards one another. 
we will remain faithful to God and, and faithful to each other, knowing that we have made covenant promises to one another. And that doesn't just mean that we point out the sins of others, but that we seek to make sure that all are restored, that all come to soundness of the faith. We, as a priesthood of believers, will seek to revive their weary souls with the Word of God, not pronouncing judgments like prophets, but to minister the Word to their hearts for growth as priests. And as priests, we will intercede on their behalf to God for them. And as Christ lovingly sacrificed himself to cover all of our sin, we will seek to love each other and to sacrifice ourselves for each other in such a way that our love covers a multitude of sins. That is how we help one another toward life and not death. That's how we help one another to fix our eyes on Christ and represent him when our enemies, though conquered, won't give up the ghost so easily. That's how we help one another as Christ helps us. And we can do that because the incarnate Son of God conquered the devil, death, and sin to help us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your grace and mercy towards us. And Lord, I pray that each of us would marvel, would marvel at the fact that the Son of God took on flesh and became like us in all respects so that he might fight our battle for us, that he might defeat our enemies and bring us to glory. And Lord, I pray that each of us would not just stop with the theological truth in our heads, but that we would know deep in our hearts and be able to live each day with the assurance that our risen Lord, who died for us and rose again, is present with us to help us. That he fights right alongside us. I pray that that would encourage us and motivate us. I pray that it would help us to just fight against sin, to set our eyes on Christ, to grow in holiness and godliness in all ways in order to reflect your glory to a broken world. Pray that it would draw us in compassion to those who are, who are still in sin, who are still in unbelief, who are still in weakness and despair, knowing that you have called us, you have made us your ambassadors to take the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to them as well. We pray this for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.